0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Tajin and the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Graham Cornwell, a PhD candidate in Middle East history at Georgetown. In 1661, King Charles II of England got a new bride and a new city. When he married Catherine of Braganza in Portugal, the city of Tangier in Morocco, which had been in Portuguese hands for nearly 200 years, came as part of the dowry. But English rule was short. And by early 1684 the last garrisons of english troops sailed away and left the city to moroccan tribes from the reef who had successfully cut the city off from its supply lines the best known source from the english interlude comes from the famous diaries of samuel peeps who in 1683 accompanied admiral lord dartmouth to tangier as his personal secretary and while many sources abound for this period the mystery of, of what went wrong so to speak or more carefully put why the colony was unsustainable, has perplexed historians for some time. Today we're recording from Tangier itself, perched high above the old Medina, staring out at Gibraltar, the Tangier American Legation Institute for Moroccan Studies. And I'm joined by the expert on all things English Tangier, Karim Bejit, professor in the Department of English at Abdul-Madak Asadi University in Tetuan, and the former professor of English Studies at Hassan Tu University in Casablanca. Karim is the author of English Colonial Texts on Tangier, 1661-1684, Imperialism and the Politics of Resistance, published in Ashgate in 2015. And he's the author of a volume of short stories, Hamid al-Maghribi, and a 2013 collection of 19th-century European travel essays on Morocco, titled El Rehla wa Surat al-Ahr. He's here to discuss this strange and understudied period, in Moroccan history English history and even Mediterranean history Karim, welcome to the program. Thank you So let's start off um, With a, with a broad question. What made English Tangier different politically and administratively from from other uh, Parts of the English Empire in the 17th century.
1: Well, I guess part of the answer lies in the fact that until mid 17th century the English didn't have a colony in the Mediterranean the uh, the Mediterranean was the traditional zone of influence of the two major imperial powers at the time, the Ottomans and the and the Iberians, and particularly the Spaniards, or the Spanish. Uh, and you um, probably um, know that they had um, several naval battles, Lepanto, 1571, uh, Tunis, uh, 1574. But during the, the mid uh, uh, or the early half of the, the early 17th century, the first half of the 17th century, um, uh, northern European powers begin to get more interested in in the Mediterranean. Uh, The United provinces, the Netherlands, and the English particularly wanted to establish commercial and trade um, links with Mediterranean countries, including South Mediterranean countries, like um, as they were called the Barbary States at the time. So they had that extensive network of trade with Mediterranean states and the Levant. But the English had to wait until the early uh, 1660s to uh, have a firm foothold in the Mediterranean. And that came uh, through a, a very um, unexpected uh, route. Uh, yes. That's the marriage treaty that you mentioned uh, in the in your introduction, the marriage treaty between the Portuguese and, and the English government, which granted um, King Charles II, a newly restored monarch, um, both uh, Bombay and and Tangier and, and as you certainly know these were very strategically located um, towns uh, the other part to your the other part of the answer to your question is um, the strategic location of Tangier more than anything else uh, the location of Tangier uh, was the most important um, uh, factor in deciding um, the acceptance of the treaty and increasing uh, English uh, official and public interest in in the colony. And so um, um, Tangier would be treated differently from all other colonies afterwards. It would have a special status. Um, Charles II uh, would even establish a sort of government uh, for Tangier, the Tangier Committee, which was presided by his own brother, Duke of York, James. and, uh, and a number of dignitaries and officials chosen by him himself, and for the two decades, they um, almost controlled every aspect of administration of Tangier. They picked up um, the officials, the governors. They decided on the budget. So the closely administered the 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 city of Tangier. Perhaps that's one of the reasons why things went wrong with Tangier, as you mentioned, which was not the case with Bombay, which was ceded to the uh, East India Company in 1668 and had its own fate.
0: So you think that the that the personal nature, a little bit of, of Charles II's attachment, maybe, or or um, to, to Tangier played a role in, in its, you know, eventual demise or, or failure.
1: Right. Well, uh, uh, Tangier came as a dory, but also Bombay came as a dory, and there were other things that that, that were part of dory. But Tangier's location at the, at the, the mouth of the, uh, the Mediterranean, uh, across the Strait, across from Spain and Portugal, uh, along a very busy route, the the Mediterranean and the Atlantic. I think that made all the difference for Charles II, and for that he was willing to sacrifice a- a- anything for for. It. And um, it, it seems that his attachment um, to Tangier was um, a reason for 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 um, following policies that were not always, um, you know, very popular in, in his own country. So the, the point that I'm trying to make is that the, the fate of Tangier and the mother country were linked from the very beginning.
0: So that's one side of kind of the coin, I suppose. What's happening in Morocco um, at this time?
1: Um, well, I can't help find a lot of similarities between English and Moroccan history during the 17th century. Uh, during the late 16th century, um, both Sultan uh, Ahmed al-Mansur, the Saudi Sultan, and, um, and uh, Queen Elizabeth I had close ties and they exchanged ambassadors and they had quite an extensive trade going on. And then uh, both died in 1603 and what followed was a sort of chaotic period. Um, the civil war in England, but there were also a very long period of, of chaos and, and fighting uh, in Morocco. And um, the Saudi dynasty shrunk gradually, that by early 1640s, there was no sort of government to uh, hold the country together. And so there were so many Zawaiyas in Morocco and they split all the country into different zones of influence. And for example, the the Netherlands um, um, uh, had like 200 captives, held in the south of Morocco, and the sultan couldn't do anything. The sultan in Mohammed Sheikh in 1635, and even later on, couldn't do anything about it. So they had to negotiate with local chieftains.
0: And the sultan at the time was based in Fez? Uh,
1: no, he was based in Marrakesh. In Marrakesh, okay. And and so, as you can see, the, the country was in a very bad shape. Um, in the north, uh, where Tangier was... Uh, um, spanish and then in 1643 became portuguese again that's another part of the history of Tangier. we could come back to it if you want Um, but after that uh, in 1661 it became english and at that time there was no um strong dynasty in morocco to um face this uh, new uh, incomer, or this new visitor, uh, as it were. Um, but there was Gailan, perhaps. We can talk a little bit about Al-Khadir uh, Gailan, who was uh, from Larash and who gradually spread uh, his uh, influence along the, the northern region. And he gave hard time to the Portuguese when they h- held the city.
0: So we would describe him as a, um, as a leader of a Zawiya, or...?
1: Um, not really. Uh, Khadir Ghailan considered himself a sort of mujahid. He was like a, a military figure who could mobilize the tribes around Tangier, Asila, and um, um, his uh, first target was to um, expel the invaders, the Christian invaders from Moroccan cities. This was like um, priority number one for him, rather than establish a sort of uh, religious school in the but uh, he was certainly a disciple of laayashi who was uh, a saint considered a saint one of the sheikhs uh, one of the you know the heads of zawiya one of the zawias in, in morocco um, so until uh, 1666 the english had to face not uh, a, a central government but a local uh, chieftain that's khadir ghailan and we find his names mentioned extensively in in, a, in numerous texts in the early English history, English history in general.
0: So the English were aware of kind of internal Moroccan political dynamics going on.
1: Absolutely, uh, and and so when Charles II became Sultan, sorry, King of England, <laughs> Moulay um, Rashid, uh, the brother of Moulay uh, Ismail. Uh, was gradually establishing uh, and consolidating his power in Morocco. And um, uh, in, in 1666, um, uh, Raylan was defeated and he uh, later on uh, escaped to Asila and later on went to Algiers. And from that time on, the English had to deal with a very powerful dynasty uh, in Morocco and that's the Alawid dynasty which reigns until the present.
0: So, uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about how Mulay Ismail's consolidation um, affects English Tangier.
1: Um, surprisingly, didn't at the very beginning because he becomes sultan in 1672.
0: But he has, I mean, he has such a, I should say, he has such a reputation for sort of consolidating this Alawi state and, yeah. and reorganizing a very powerful central government.
1: He did. Uh, especially after, uh, after he became sultan. Um, initially, he was uh, um, a governor of Meknes, uh, and Mullah Rashid was the one who did the, 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 you know, the good part of the job of consolidating the country and um, defeating all his um, opponents and destroying all the did uh, the Dila'id who were controlling the Zawiyah Dila'iyah and had control over Salih for some time and Fez. Um, and so, uh, when uh, uh, Moulay Ismail becomes sultan in 1672, um, uh, there was Ghaylan again, who came from Algiers and who, you know, hoped that he would still, um, you know, uh, establish his name again. Um, but he was defeated in 1673, and that's the end of Ghaylan and the beginning of Moulay Ismail. Moulay Ismail was uh, capable of, um, you know, freeing or expelling. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, Spanish from a number of cities and English uh, later on. But his relations with English are mu- much more complex than we generally assume in, in Moroccan historiography. there is very little um, discussed in that historiography about English. Moroccan relations at the time.
0: Let's talk a little about Tangier's regional connections and w- how it's kind of situated in the, the second half of the, or, or say the 17th century, but particularly this, the second half of the century. Can we, can we talk about strong regional connections to other Mediterranean ports, um, Gibraltar, Cadiz, right. Algiers even, during this time?
1: Um, no. Uh, surprisingly again the answer is no Tangier was an insulated insulated place uh, it has its own fate and uh, when the English were established in Tangier they had to face all sorts of enemies including their Christian neighbors the Spanish uh, in particular and the French uh, The Spanish
0: who had their own cities and holdings on the Moroccan on the coast Moroccan, nearby
1: absolutely and who were only uh, a few miles away they were uh, controlling Gibraltar, of course. Gibraltar became English in 1704. And um, so the, the um, coming of the English to Tangier was frowned upon from all sorts of, of places. And North African uh, states, Algiers, Tunis, Tripoli, uh, didn't very much like uh, um, the fact that the English would, would establish their power in Tangier. And if, if you look at the um, at the first correspondence between Charles II and his uh, local governors and officials in, in in Tangier, they had dreams of expanding beyond Tangier. They had dreams to establish an empire in North Africa. And then they had they had a, an extensive trade going on across the Atlantic. So from all sorts of angle, the, their their coming to Tangier was not. The best news for for the neighbors. Um, The Spanish even uh, uh, established uh, an embargo against Tangier, and it was during this time too that we had the three, well, not the three, two uh, Anglo-Dutch wars going on. And one of the weak spots of 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 the English was Tangier because it didn't have a a a strong uh, uh, harbor and um, Tangier was cut from its um, um, mother country, and the supplies were not always on time. So the English faced the English population, and the the army faced hard times during the 1670s, and the 1660s in particular.
0: A lot of the book um, kind of in particular focuses on impressions of Moroccan Moorish society, uh, drawn from the English experience in Tangier and and how those things were disseminated in various texts and pamphlets back in England during the time to generalize a little bit could could you give us an idea of how English I guess at least literate populations or or uh, um, or uh, you know the public sphere I suppose are are consuming or digesting information about Tangier, what what they're um, discovering and learning about about Moroccans during the period during period. the period, absolutely.
1: Well, I think this is the most important part of what at least interests the legacy, me. maybe yeah, the legacy and then the massive um, archives that was generated uh, in the process for from sixteen early sixteen sixty two until sixteen eighty four and even after. Um, for one reason, Tangier was quite removed from England, and so they relied on almost every piece of information they could get in, in written format. So there was an extensive correspondence going on. Um, there were also uh, commissioned pamphlets by um, um, officials. Um, we can talk about some of the pamphlets that were um, desired by um, you know governors or members of the parliament. Um, to uh, know about the condition of Tangiers, because the fate of Tangier interested everyone, and because it, the the amount of money that was spent was, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, raising questions from all all, all sorts of places. So they needed all sorts of information, and they, in the process, that that information was stored and was recorded, and it, it is in the British archives. Uh, that we have all that sort of information. Not only that, but we can see how that um, rudimentary information translated was translated into literary texts um, and how the, the uh, perception of the more uh, changed radically during the Restoration period. The, the amount of information, the amount of knowledge that we know about Morocco, about North Africa uh, in comparison with earlier periods is extraordinary and it changed the view about North Africa, about Morocco, about the ethnic groups that uh, lived in this country in, in, a, in a very radical terms. We also know a lot about Islamic practices uh, in, in Morocco during this period and I think this is what interests me. It's not just the historical uh, events but also the, what went on in the discourse, how uh, Europeans begin to rediscover these regions that were so close in comparison with the New World, for example, or India or China. Um, this, the Mediterranean was more or less uh, very close to them, but it is through this experience, despite its failure, that they had established uh, a deep and concrete knowledge of the region.
0: Welcome back to the podcast. We're joined again by Kareem Bejit talking about English Tangier. So Kareem, you fo- you're focusing on this English Tangier period and the, the information, you talk about the volume of this archive that's developed in just, you know, 20, 23 years. How does it differ from the information that, um, and, and perhaps the archive that the English have amassed um, on, say, the Islamic world? Ottomans, Turks, Moors, prior to uh, kind of gaining a foothold in North Africa?
1: Well, it does differ in terms of volume, but also in terms of nature, of of representation themselves. Uh, It is the sort of discourse that is produced before the period of the Restoration of the English presence in Tangier, was determined through um, the sort of contact that uh, that existed at the time. Um, Most Sort of uh, of writing that were produced were produced by captives or ex captives. Um, there were a lot of um, captives held in Barbary, the Barbary states, North African states, and many of them were were redeemed. And once they went back, they wrote about their experience. Uh, obviously, the the experience of captivity was not a very pleasant um, experience, and and um, the difference in culture. In religious practice, so th- there was a kind of negativity in the in those representation, and and I think a number of, of historians um, discussed those uh, cap- captivity narratives and how they shaped, um, uh, you know, European knowledge about these countries and how these countries were not considered as um, uh, worthy of uh, establishing diplomatic relations with and. Um, and because they engaged in piracy, because they um, attacked European uh, trade and shipping, and, and and so the sort of information that we had was n- very scant in the first place, and it was dominated by this uh, sort of negativity that we find both in captivity narratives, but also in the, the reports of the few consuls that were uh, established in the the big. Port uh, cities: uh, Tunis, Algiers, uh, and Salih. Um, the English had uh, uh, on on a number of occasions to send uh, their navies to attack North African cities, and um, um, their relations were tense. Um, the only exception was the for the Moroccans, at least. There were the Moroccans and the English was the uh, elite. 16th century, the Elizabethan period, as I mentioned earlier, the both Sultan Ahmed al Mansur and Elizabeth had extensive trade and and uh, exchanged um, um, ambassadors. So that that might be the only uh, cheerful moment in in the uh, long history of relations. But then you need to remember that uh, the English didn't come to the Mediterranean until mid 16th century. We trace back the first. English merchant ships coming into the ports of Morocco in the 1550s. Um, so there wasn't much known about Barber before that.
0: So some scholars, and Nabil Matar in particular, have have sort of talked about Tangier and English North African relations in the context of a much bigger British Empire, including their New World um, colonies. How How do you see Tangier and 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 North Africa, North African ambitions fit in with the much broader British Empire
1: at the time. Well, definitely, Nabil Matar is one of the most interesting um, scholars who discussed English historical cultural relations between England and North African states, and particularly the Ottomans. Um, The Ottomans established their Empire and extended up to the borders with Morocco during the 16th century, and before then, but they had continued to um, influence this um, er, this part of the Mediterranean uh, until that time. Um, uh, Nabil Matar has written extensively about these relations, and um, he has enlightened us a lot about the particularities of those contexts using. Archives, uh, including captivity narratives that I mentioned earlier, um, um, corresp- official correspondence between Ottomans and the English, between North African um, uh, uh, governors, days and bays, and, and and the English uh, um, officials, and I I think he um, in particular wanted to clarify the particularity of this encounter among the various encounters uh, that England had with various um, um, nations, uh, whether in the New World or in the Far East or in West Africa. Um, there was a, a particularity to that reason because this is not a kind of a terra incognita. This was a, a, a culture. This was a nation that had a, a region that has its own history. And um, it was also uh, important for uh, for Nabil Matar to specify how religion, how Islam in particular, um, uh, somehow created uh, a sense of identity, a sense of direction for these countries that the um, the English in particular be- begin to discern, uh, especially during the the period Tangier. He makes the point clearly that the Tangier episode um, brought the English to the point of realizing that uh, it is not possible to establish the same sort of empire that they had established in North America. So Tangier was this um, 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 moment in the emergence of the British empire, the English empire, um, that showed how fragile. And Linda Colley also made the same point towards the end of the book that Tangier served as uh, Uh, as a sort of awakening call to the English that um, not the same empire can be established in the same terms everywhere. And so it, it is a stage in the evolution of what became the British empire that we know in the 18th and 19th centuries.
0: And part of the reason for this is specifically because there is a kind of cohesive identity that Islam provides that allows for a different kind of Resistance and organization of that resistance in North Africa.
1: I think that's that's correct. Um, d- despite the differences that existed between, say, North Africans and the Ottomans, uh, there was the Islamic uh, religious element that you know brought them together, and and I, I think we might we should not pro- probably exaggerate that trade also played a very important role, sometimes beyond even religion. But I think the religious. Boundaries uh, was very prominent during the time and you know the the land of Islam and the land of Christianity Those two zones were were kept apart for most of the part for most of the time
0: So Kareem, you seem to be writing to a couple different audiences in my mind first is, is a group of historians of, of 17th century English Empire um, Maybe that that have ignored the power of the Moroccan resistance um, in in sort of assessing why English Tangier failed and the second group would be Moroccan historians who in a sense um, don't really ask uh, or don't really explore English Tangier in the historiography. Uh, One of my favorite passages from the book you delve into some of the major historiographers of of the Alawi dynasty um, writing in during the 19th and 18th and 19th century and they're they're writing a lot about how Moroccan forces expelled Spanish and and the Portuguese from from Morocco during this period um, and and before but there's very little about how they they kind of kick out the English um, why is that why, why do we see this gap um, right. related to English Tangier
1: well there're again two parts of the answer um, f- we know let's start with the British um, historians um, most of the uh, um studies written about Tangier um during the English period um were written from the vantage point of imperial his- history. Um, they looked at Tangier in very nostalgic terms. In a sense they regretted the fact that Tangier escaped their domination, and in a number of books we find the statement that if only Tangier had remained under our fold, we could have now uh, had the entire North Africa as a part of the British Empire. Um, when I look at the uh, sources, the official records in the National Archives in, in, in England, in London, I see a different story. I mean, the English had very difficult... Uh, problems to deal with, not just in facing the Moroccans, in facing the resistance of the Moroccans, but also in maintaining uh, their own existence in Tangier. Um, There were a number of factors that made the Tangier establishment a very fragile one, and for a long period of time. And so the story doesn't really much when when you want to uh, compare what uh, 19th century and early 20th century British historians write about Tangier and what the facts uh, say. They're they're not the same. So uh, I wanted to write set the record right as as they say. I wanted to go back to those archives and I draw th- on them very heavily, as you can see in my introduction, even in in the uh, annotations of the text that I I use. So my my book is bringing back some of those uh, forgotten texts and let them speak uh, on behalf of the English, those who wrote the real stories, who were there in the first place to tell the story. Um, So that's part of the answer. The other part I I am not surprised that Moroccan historians, uh, traditional historians in the 18th, 19th century, didn't write anything about Tangier because they didn't know anything about it. Tangier, as we said, was a very insulated place. They had walls surrounding it. And uh, for only a very short period of time that they had any contact with the Moroccans. So for for the most part, the Moroccans didn't know what was going on. When uh, the decision uh, was taken by Charles II to destroy the city, uh, the destruction went on, and the Moroccan army was just waiting behind the walls for the English to evacuate. So there was no contact whatsoever between. There was, of course, a correspond- official correspondence between Moroccan officials and uh, officials from the garrison, from Tangier and we can go back to those but they were talking only about points of negotiations of treaty or redeeming captives etc stuff like that so there was no not much going on and Moroccan historians of the 18th 19th century didn't know a lot about what was going on and even worse Moroccan historians modern Moroccan historians didn't take the trouble to go and check the English archives, and I think that the, that's not just the Tangier the episode, there's so much that is you know, the connections, the English, American connections, not just the English, that we still need to explore. I think the language barrier uh, uh, is, is, uh, is uh, very much deterring a number of historians who probably had their own uh, training in France and so we are looking forward to a new generation of historians to um uh dig into the archives and develop new perspectives and new visions of what happened during the long period of Moroccan history
0: that's a great point i mean in the historiography of morocco and moroccan english british relations um there's a there's an idea that of of a long sustained sort of friendship i mean even as you're starting to see imperial rivalries heat up in the 19th century. Um, the British are always or often cast as kind of the protector of Moroccan sovereignty, interested in maintaining a, a, a dominating trade and import export traffic with Morocco, but also interested in keep maintaining the Sultan sovereignty, keeping other European powers at bay. Um, do you see echoes of English Tangier? I mean, do, can you can you draw a, a continuous thread through these relations that, that begins or at least has a you know a knot in it from okay. English um, Tangier?
1: No, not really. I, I think the, um, the, the sort of uh, competition that existed between the two major imperial powers of the 19th century, the French and the English, were the ones that dictated this sort of balance and you certainly know that Morocco is the last country in North Africa to be uh, absorbed in the French empire and until the Entente Cordial 1905 that the decision was taken to uh, allow the French to annex Morocco. Uh, so I think it was uh, during the D- Drummond Hay period uh, the, 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 the official British imperial policy was to maintain Morocco as a sovereign state despite the state of anarchy and chaos and weakness that was going on. Um, but uh, in connection to Tangier, during the period of Moulay Ismail, um, the decision was taken that Tangier would be the diplomatic capital. Uh, and so all sort of consuls were established in Tangier and they, um, in, you know, all sorts of treaties were negotiated in Tangier. So, yes, I think the British continued to hold Tangier in, in high esteem, and they had these nostalgic feelings about this was our colony. I think even today, uh, you find a lot of Brits saying that, uh, yes, we, we lived here, we, we went, uh, we passed by here, and we had our ancestors uh, live and, and fought for Tangier during the late 17th century. So I think that that remains... Even today,
0: do you think that those are the primary kind of traces we see? I mean, do we see any traces of English Tangier in the built environment of the city?
1: No, no, really, I don't think so. But I, I think there are, there is a there are a number of interesting studies that have been conducted. Um, what I know from from the uh, 1683 correspondence that the destruction was complete and, uh, the houses and the walls etc but then the uh, um, this was on the surface but what laid uh, um beneath i think uh historians and uh, archaeologists can dig and and perhaps um recover uh, the traces of that existence but the uh morphology of the city was uh, changed after that. The city uh, was immediately occupied by Moroccans and populations were relocated located to uh, live in the city and they uh, somehow uh, established a different layout to the city. I think the the ramparts, more or less, can be unearthed and, and rediscovered if we can use the modern technology and we can still perhaps identify um, you know, uh, as you said, signs of that uh, bygone presence.
0: Well, I want to close by turning to uh, one of the last things that you include in the book, and it's it's a very interesting poem um, from from 1683. Um, I'm going to read a passage, and, and I mean, and I guess I'm just going to ask you to illuminate a little bit of what you think this says about the sense of, English nostalgia that even you're seeing in tourists today, maybe, um, for, for this period in Tangier, uh, Tanjawi history. So, it's called Tangier's Lamentation. Let the Moors repine, their hopes resign, now the pagan troops are cheated, let foot and horse, since Tangier is defeated. Alas, Tangier, what sudden doom hath wrought this alteration, that thus thy march should now become thy fatal lamentation. Now alas, Tangier, that cost so dear in money, lives, and fortunes. See how the states, the kinder fates, for thy own fate importunes. Had this been plotted by the Moors, alas, it were no matter. But blown up thus by thy own store, thou'dst better swum in water. So some very kind of dramatic language. you know, singing this this ode to a city that didn't really last very long and wasn't very well governed while it did last.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I think, yes, the poem sums up the whole story. Um, so much money was spent in Tangier, so many hopes were raised. There was a port um, uh, that was being built and it drained the purse of the king um, and... As we said, um, Tangier was the beginning of a a bigger project, perhaps an imperial um, uh, territory here in in North Africa. It didn't work and um, um, the English had to destroy the city because they were afraid someone else would take over and would do a better job. The English suffered from uh, the the fact that they were not so close to Tangier. They could not secure Tangier. They could not provide supplies on uh, 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 during the, the hard times. So the decision was taken by the king, and it was a painful decision. I made the point at the very beginning of my introduction. It was not an easy decision. They had to, um, you know, um, look at all sorts of solutions but there was no so no solution coming mole um, ismail was determined to expel the english and he could wait he could have waited another 10 15 years but he would have caused the english even more and and so the decision was taken and and he just shows the frustration among uh, a lot of people in england uh, the public in particular who were considered that tangier would uh, Tangier's, um, uh, uh, s- the surrender of Tangier is another blow to the English pride. There were several at the time, you know, the domestic English politics was not in the better shape during the late uh, period of Charles II, and we know what what followed during James II and the, the, uh, the, the, the 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 events that followed until James um, II abdicated. So uh, yes, in a sense, it, it it reflects the sense of loss, the sense of um, regret that we we found paramount not just in this poem but in a number of other pamphlets. On the other hand, the population of the, uh, uh, in the uh, in Tangier were so happy to go back to England because they felt, I think, one of the pamphlets says. Uh, a place in England is better than 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 Tangier which remind them of both a prison and a hospital yeah so uh it is um it is both you know it 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 received a lot of happiness from some and it it was considered you know like um uh, it was a bad news for the rest
0: I think that's a good um kind of stopping point uh ending with the, the, the lamentation and, and, um, um, and a bit of the nostalgia. Uh, Kareem, thank you for joining us. My this, pleasure. This has been a really interesting conversation about, um, that it touched on a lot of uh, uh, macro-imperial um, uh, machinations, if you will, Moroccan-English uh, relations, internal Moroccan-state consolidation, um, and, uh, and imperial rivalries in the Mediterranean. Um, so thank you again. Thank you, Graham. And be sure to check out our website, com for more information and a bibliography from today's show.